Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. Now, we gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. for prayer, for worship, for Bible study. Now, we believe that an online service is valid. Uh, We have people that watch while they're on vacation, if they're sick. Uh, there are people who can't come to church. Uh, they're, they're not really able to get out of the house or they're Im- immunocompromised. I was talking to somebody uh, today who, uh, who basically is have to, very limited where they can go because of being immunocompromised. So uh, we recognize that as valid, but we also believe that being part of a church is not just coming to Sunday services, but it's being part of a family. It's not a building. It's a, a group of people that have been called out of this world to follow Jesus. And so we want to invite you to be part of that as our small groups start to rev back up for the fall after the summer hiatus. You know, you can email small groups at faithonhill.com. We have a Tuesday night young adults group. We have a Wednesday night online group. We have a Sunday morning in-person group, and we're looking to add another in-person group as well. So you can email small groups at faithonhill.com and ask for more information. If you've been watching online or listening to the podcast, but you've never connected with us, uh, adam at faithonhill.com is my email. Uh, Of course, if you're listening or watching, we know you're probably on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Maybe you're on our Facebook page. Uh, You just have to search Faith on Hill for any of those platforms, or you can go to our website, faithonhill.com, and click the online gatherings tab. And uh, if you scroll down, you'll find all of our online offerings, our Starting Points podcast, 20-minute Bible study, our Talk About Anything podcast, as well as these Sunday services. We're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Well, this morning as we finish... Matthew's uh, 16th chapter, we want to talk about getting our head right. And what I mean by that is this. I think there's several ways you could use that phrase, getting our head right. But what I mean by that is this. There are times and seasons and moments in our lives where our head is just cloudy. It's foggy. It's, it's not where it should be. Uh, maybe you've been going through a storm or a season of trial or struggle, and, and you just know, hey, you know what? My head's not right. Um, I haven't I haven't got the focus that I had before. Uh, Life just threw me for a loop this week or this month or the last three years or whatever. And I just need to regain where I am at, where I am going. And life is like that. There are times where we're so busy and then, you know what, my head's not right. I got to make sure that I'm taking care of my family. Uh, You know, life gets crazy and you go, my head's not right. I I, got to make sure that I'm I'm doing what I need to do in my own personal health or at, at work or whatever. The same can be true in our faith. Our head can be just not right. And getting our head straight, getting our head right. This is what's going on for the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. Is that, you know what? We, we talked about this last week, how, you know, Jesus is, is, has spoken to them and he said, you know, who do you say that I am? And, and they say, hey, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But then as we read this morning, it's not like they, they don't live in that. They, they actually kind of start pushing back to Jesus, like, you can't be serious. This can't be right. But you just said he's the Messiah. You just said he's the son of the living God. Who, who are you going to go with, the Messiah or you? I want to go with the Messiah and what he's saying. But their heads weren't right, and they needed to get them right. So Jesus is going to tell them what must happen. In fact, it says in chapter 16, verse 21, that from that time, which is the time that the disciples declared that they believed Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, from that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall not happen to you. This shall not happen to you. Now Jesus has told them what must happen. You know, if I hear or read or see a word repeated multiple times in a short amount of time, I'm going to say, hey, that might be an important word. You know, he began to tell his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must be killed. Oh, hey, this, these things have to happen. There are things that, have to, that could happen. There are things that must happen. There are things that could happen. There are things that must happen. People talk about the will of God. That means, hey, what is it that God wants to happen? What is it that God will make happen? That's the will of God. But the will of God is not just one thing. Through study of the scripture and through logic and reasoning, we can kind of identify that the will of God is expressed in three different ways. There is the sovereign will of God. These are the things that must happen. And then there is the perfect will of God. These are the things that should happen. So the sovereign will of God, it was God's sovereign will to create the world. That happened. It was God's sovereign will for Jesus to die and rise again. As we just read, that must happen. That's God's sovereign will. Then there's God's perfect will. For example, back in the beginning, the Garden of Eden, and God said, hey, you can eat from any tree in the garden. But he told the first people, if you eat from this one tree, that's it. There'll be judgment, there'll be death. God's perfect will was for them to not eat that forbidden fruit. But then there's this third thing. There's what should happen and there's what can happen. There's the permissive will of God. What does that mean? It means that God gives his creation, humanity, free will. We get to make choices in this life. There is God's perfect will for us. Are you married? God's perfect will in general is that you would stay married. Well, that seems ungracious to people who have been divorced. Hey, I have so much grace for people who have been divorced. It is not the unpardonable sin. We've talked about that. It is not the thing that will ruin, you know, like it, divorce is bad. You know, something that, you know, we're, we're number one demographic in our church is educators, right? And, and it's something that I've talked about. My wife and I talk about this all the time. Whereas as educators, you know, my wife's an educator um, and I substitute teach, but I also as a pastor deal with people, right? And we know that divorce is traumatic on children. And yet we can't be honest and say, hey, is it possible for you to not get divorced so that you don't inflict this trauma on your children? What I'm saying is there's God's perfect will. This is the best way for you to go. And then there's God's permissive will. All right, I'm going to let you make your choices. Now, in the middle of all that is God's grace, God's mercy, and God's redemption. And I love redemption stories. And I have seen amazing things happen in the middle of traumatic situations. So I don't think that anybody's, you know, so far gone or I've, oh, I've messed up and, and now nothing can be good in my life. Of course not. God's redemptive story is working. But understand when we talk about the will of God, there's the sovereign will of God, things that must happen. 
the perfect will of God, things that should happen, would be best if we did these things. And there is the permissive will of God. Hey, this, this is me allowing you within my sovereign will to make your own choices. And that's human free will. Human free will exists within the sovereign will of God. He has given it to us. He has allowed it. And then he says, all right, I'll, I'm going to permit this. I'm going to allow this. You could also say God's permissive will exists uh, in the sense of, uh, in the book of Job, the enemy, Satan, says, I want to do this thing. It's interesting. He has to ask God's permission. And, and God's sovereignty says, well, I'll allow this, but you can't go any further. There was barriers put up. I'll permit this, but there's a limit to how far it can go. And there will come a point where God's sovereignty will end the permissiveness. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to read at the end of, of the chapter today that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus is, is going to return and say, this, this is enough, no more. And so there will come a time where in his sovereignty, God will return physically to this earth and say, this sin and this rebellion is at an end. I have permitted it throughout human history, but it is done. And you can read about that in the book of the Revelation, what's going to happen. But, but this idea that God's permitting human rebellion, God is permitting the rebellion of Satan and his demons, God is permitting all of this to happen because he's given us free will. And he is giving us a choice. Hey, you can choose to continue the rebellion or you can choose Jesus. You can choose to continue in sin or you can choose to be saved. It says in the book of Romans that we are saved to the uttermost. You can be saved fully. Our human free will exists within the will of God. So there are things that must happen. So Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to be killed at the hands of sinful men. Why? Because sin must be atoned for. By the way, we should all agree with this, right? Think about injustice that happens in the world. Right now, uh, you know, I, I, you see cries of injustice, cries of hypocrisy. Why is this allowed? Why is it that, you know, the, the war crimes happening in the Ukraine or Deshaun Watson didn't get suspended? He only got suspended for six games, but we know he was a predator. And what's going on? And, and, and there's injustice. We want justice. We want things that are wrong to be put right. And the sins of this world must be put right. But if you're the guilty person, what is it that you want? You want mercy. And all of us, every person who has ever lived, is currently living, or who's ever lived in the future, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, through our sins, deserve the justice of God, the judgment of God against our rebellion. And yet, what does the guilty person ask the judge for? Show me mercy. The justice of God says Justice must happen. Judgment for sin must happen. The love of God says, I want to save you from this. He's not contrary. He's saying, how can I save people from their sins when justice demands that sins be punished? And the only way is atonement. To pay for something. To redeem something to save something. And through Jesus' death, 
justice is fulfilled. Jesus took the sins of the whole world on his shoulders, and he took my sins and your sins, for they were many, and he took them and he placed them on himself. So God's perfect sovereign will is accomplished. And in his permissive will, he gives us the choice. Do you choose or accept? But these are the things that must happen. So when we're getting our head right, we have to get our heads to understand Jesus had to die and I must choose this day. Who do I serve? Who is my Lord? Where do I stand? Do I stand in the righteousness of Jesus, in the mercy of God? Or do I stand in rebellion to God? Do I not surrender my life? Do I live in the coming judgment that my sins deserve? These are things that must happen. And in getting our heads right, we have to ask, what does Jesus still want? Last week, we talked about what Jesus wants. What does he still want? What Jesus still wants. Verse 22 You know, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have the mind, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What does that mean? You don't have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. Get behind me. Well, there's two things going on here. Because remember, Jesus is still fully human, and he has not yet chronologically gone to the cross. And here is Peter saying, you don't have to do that, Jesus. You don't have to do that. Not you. You won't die. But Jesus, in submitting to the Father, is choosing to live in the perfect will of God. If you want to understand the human part of Jesus and what makes the human Jesus different than all other people, it's that Jesus continually lived in the perfect will of God as a human. And Peter's trying to tempt him. And so he compares him to Satan. Hey man, you're like Satan to me. You're the tempter right now. Get out of my way. I'm trying to do the perfect will of God. But what does he still want? Remember last week, what did we just read? Peter declared his faith in Jesus. But Jesus still wants Peter's declaration of faith. Here's the problem. The Bible says that we should consider ourselves dead to sin. We should should basically live our lives and think in such a way that there was Adam, the sinner, and when Jesus saved me, that guy died and he is buried. And that's what baptism is a picture of, is, is a public declaration that I died and I was buried. And that person that rose out of the waters was the Adam that is in Jesus. The Adam that is Jesus' Adam, not the Adam of sin and death. The problem is sometimes our old self wants to, like in a movie, you know, the hand shoots out of the grave, you know. It's a great shot in those kind of lame horror films, you know. There's a grave, there's, there's the ground in front of the gravestone, and the hand shoots up, and it wants to come back, and it wants to take control. The Bible also talks about us being living sacrifices. It says that it's a reasonable thing for us to do. But you know what's interesting about being a living sacrifice? Sometimes you want to crawl off the altar. You want to, I don't want to be a sacrifice anymore. I want to go back to being in control. And Peter's old self wants to come back and take charge again. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, I still want your declaration of faith. In American Christianity, 
we have really emphasized the conversion moment and the sinner's prayer. And there is a reason for this, by the way, because there is, I think, a point in which people bow their knee and surrender their lives to Jesus. And the sinner's prayer, while not in the Bible— that might surprise you to hear somebody say that, but it's not in the Bible. But the sinner's prayer is just a, a sort of a focal point, a way for you to publicly say, God, I surrender myself to you. To, it's no different than when Peter said, I, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, except instead of saying it directly to Jesus face to face, we're praying it to God because Jesus physically isn't here with us, right? But we emphasize this moment when, when the Bible models a life of surrender, it models a life of surrender. So Jesus still wants our surrender. He still wants our declaration of faith. When we're talking about getting our head right, can I suggest that sometimes a believer's head is not right because the old man is kind of wanting to come back. The old life is wanting to reclaim itself. The living sacrifice is wanting to crawl off of the altar. And then all of a sudden, we want to be back in control instead of saying, God, I surrender to you. We say, no, I'm going to take control back. And sometimes I've got to get my head right and say, no, I'm, I'm dead to my old life of sin. Jesus' is, is new life in me is real. And I have surrendered myself to him. These are these yeah, I got to get my head right. I got to be back to that place of surrender. It must happen. It must happen. And Jesus still wants it. So what does it take then to live in that surrender, to be a disciple of Jesus? It says, verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, all of them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So Jesus recognizes that it might be Peter who's rebuking him, but he's sort of the spokesman for the group. My kids do this all the time. They will send the youngest, I, I think if they identified a weakness in me, I don't know. But they will send whoever the youngest is. If they have, a, if they have friends over, whichever kid is the youngest. If it's just my two boys, it'll be the youngest boy. Uh, they will send the youngest kid to ask, can we play video games? Can we have some ice cream? Can we do, you know, do something, whatever. But they're just the spokesman. And so Jesus is recognizing it's not just Peter who's saying this. He's just speaking for the group. So he goes and he speaks to the whole group. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here with me will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Before we get into the meat of this, I want to address two things that might be questions people say. First is in verse 27, when it says that Jesus will reward each person for what they have done. And someone will say, I thought we were just saved by the grace of God. But I have to do things for God to reward me? I believe if we boiled this down to its most basic, simplest terms, what Jesus is saying is you will be rewarded with what you have done in response to Jesus. Have you accepted or rejected Jesus' call on your life? And we could get into deeper conversations about what all that means. But for right now, let's just, on the most basic terms, let's say 
this is what Jesus is saying, that he's talking about what you have done in response to him and who he is and what he has done in your life. Then he says that there's somebody who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We do not, some parts of the Bible are incredibly clear, some parts of the Bible are less clear. I, I, I live under the maxim that all parts of the Bible are true, but not all the parts of the Bible are equally clear. Best that I could tell you, as I understand the scripture, is at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus says something very similar. But then John addresses a rumor that had gone up in the early church. Because remember, Matthew's Gospel was written far earlier than the Gospel of John. So John's addressing a rumor possibly caused by this verse. And it makes sense. All of the other apostles are dead. And John is the only one left alive. So there's people who are like, hey, John's still alive. So he's getting pretty old. He's going to die soon. So Jesus must be coming back really soon because he has to come back before John dies. And John makes it clear that's not what Jesus was saying. Personally, personally, I believe that this is speaking of John the Apostle seeing a vision of what will come in the book of the Revelation. And we know that some of the Apostles specifically John and implied Paul the Apostle, uh, who wasn't there at the time but included in the list there, that they did see visions of what will come and that John saw the coming glory of Jesus, saw the second coming of Jesus from afar. I personally think that's what this is talking about. But for our time this morning, what is more important is getting our head right. What does it take to be a disciple? Hey, what must happen? Jesus must die for our sins. What must happen? We must continue to surrender our lives to Jesus. What must happen? Well, if I'm going to get my head right about what it means to be a disciple, there's all kinds of people that say, hey, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. But that's not the question. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Not a fan, not a groupie, not an expert. There are plenty of people that know all about the Bible but don't know Jesus. There are plenty of people that like Christianity. They like church or at least certain expressions of church, certain styles of church. There are people that genuinely enjoy a good church service and don't know Jesus. What does it take to be a disciple? Somebody who has committed their life to following their master. Somebody who changes their whole life to be like their master. And we've talked about this before, but you can go to Jerusalem and you can see all of these Orthodox Jews who dress, you know, one fellow is wearing one type of hat and another fellow is wearing a different type of hat. And one fellow is wearing an all black suit and another fellow wears a suit with thin pinstripes or thick pinstripes or whatever. And it's because that's how their rabbi dresses. They're disciples of a master. How do we be a disciple of Jesus? What does he say? He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves. Self-denial. Remember what we said earlier, that we should consider our old life of sin dead. Take up your cross. Now, we don't think about it because we don't have crucifixion in our culture, but for them, it's the same as saying, get your hangman's noose. Give the bullets to the firing squad. Consider yourself dead to this world of sin and alive in the kingdom of heaven. So deny yourself identify with Christ, take up your cross just as Jesus took up his cross and let go of this world. 
That's what it takes to be a disciple. Now here's the problem, is that my entire life, there, and, and going back in history, this has always been a problem. There are people who try to take these verses and use it as a justification for living in a specific way as a system of control. And they'll say, hey, you know, we live this way and that's how we are not of this world and we're different than everybody else. And really, it's just that they like are more comfortable with a previous era. You know, my, uh, my great, my grandfather uh, was raised Mennonite. So my great grandfather grew up Mennonite back in Pennsylvania. And then when my grandfather was a boy, great grandfather Burkhart said, nope, we're not hanging anymore. And so they, they left the Mennonite community and uh, joined the rest of the world, right? The Mennonites would say, we live differently than the world, but really you just live like it's the 1600s. Like there, there's no difference between you and somebody from the 1600s. You live differently than somebody now, but you don't live differently than a previous era. Do you see what I'm saying? They're not trying to actually live differently than the world. They just live like a previous time. And I have, you know, Baptist friends who seem, you know, dead bent on living like it's the 1950s, you know, where maybe a Mennonite's trying to, or an Amish person's trying to live like it's the, you know, 1650s. I don't think this is talking about a system of control. I don't think this is talking about, you know, we're not of this world, so we're only going to watch Christian movies, uh, or, you know, we're going to do this or that. I think this is just talking about being like Jesus. And I am dying to myself. I'm identifying with Jesus and his death and his resurrection and his grace and his mercy and his power. And I'm done with this world. Now, does that mean that I, I just say, I check out everything? No, of course not. You know, I keep, I watch the baseball games. I, I enjoy knowing what's going on in the world. I, I try to be active in my community. Being not of this world doesn't mean that we've totally checked out. In fact, in some ways, it means that we dig in more, that we're more connected, that we're more concerned, that we care more because Jesus cared. You know how I know? Because I see it in the scripture. And you, well, I'm not going to celebrate, you know, non-Christian holidays, Christmas or Fourth of July. I'm going to be not of this world. But we know that from the gospels, there were festivals and feasts that Jesus went to, and the, and the gospel writer identifies the time of year, and we can look and go, hey, there's no biblical feast or festival during that time. There's extra biblical ones, good ones, like Purim, you know, Hanukkah, and he went and observed those, but they aren't part of the prescribed. They were just part of his culture. It takes to be a disciple, denial of ourself, Peter came to Jesus and said, you are not going to do this thing. We come to Jesus all the time and and say, I don't like this part of the Bible. I don't like this thing that you might be calling to. I would like to live as the world lives in this part of my life. And Jesus says, no, take up your cross and follow me. And that means different things to different people. And I could, you know, walk into one church or walk into another church and it would mean totally different things to the people of each of those churches. But to deny ourselves, to identify with Christ and to let go of this world is to be a disciple of Jesus. Because our hope is not in this world. It says that the Son of Man, that is the Messiah, will come with the Father's glory. I love Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our hope is not in this world. And it is good to remember that. Our hope is not based on our career. Our hope is not based on our education. Our hope is not based on how well our kids do in school or if they get on the select sports team or if they get that scholarship. Our hope is not based on whether our candidate wins or loses. Our hope is not based on this world. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, does that mean that I don't care about the election? No, I'm going to vote. Does that mean that I don't care how my kids do in school? No, far from it. Does it mean that I'm not going to like, you know, do all the things in my life? You know, my hope's not based in my health. No, of course not. I'm going to do the things I have to do, you know, as a human being in this world. But my hope is not in those things. My hope is in the glory of God that is to come. My hope is in Jesus' death and resurrection. My hope is in Jesus' soon return. That's where our hope is. And we've got to get our heads right about that. Because one of the things that must happen is that sin must be fully dealt with. The madness of this world must come to an end. Jesus must come back. And if I have my hope in a world that is dying, then my hope is misplaced. If I have my hope outside of the glory of God, then I will be disappointed. Can I tell you? One of the reasons I think people have left churches so disappointed in the last however many years And this is something I used to say a lot, and I need to start saying it more and more. If you come to church for any other reason besides Jesus, you will be disappointed. You come to church because you like the preacher. I read an article yesterday about a church in Texas, and it seemed like they had it all figured out. Multi-ethnic, multicultural church, young, attractive, good-looking pastor and his wife. And, and, and the article had interviews with people who had been at the church, and they said, I walked into the church, it was like a breath of fresh air, because I looked at the pastor and his wife, and I said, oh, they're great. But what they don't realize is that by their own words, they're saying, I came in, and my hope for this church was based off of people. My hope for this church was based off of something other than Jesus. My hope for this church was based off of what I thought I could get from it. And then eventually they will disappoint. People will disappoint. Programs will disappoint. You know, you come to a church and you think, this is perfect. It's not my grandfather's church. It's current. And then current, as you get older, doesn't stay current anymore. And then the church says, hey, we want to stay being current. And you go, what? My hope was in what I liked. And now you're changing things. And you think this is just what old people do. Old people complain about changes. I remember, I I have seen young people complain about changes. You know, I grew up in a church that was very modern and current in the 90s. And then as it changed to be current in the 2000s, people in their 20s who had been really comfortable with the 90s church and hadn't kind of moved on with the times, they started complaining. We all have these things that we place our hope in. And they will always fail if our hope, if our goal is anything other than Jesus, we will be let down. But our hope is in the glory of God. And Jesus had to go to the cross. And we have to deny ourselves, identify with him, and let go of this world, or we have no hope. And that's the truest thing I can tell you this morning. 
Hey, I want to thank you again for joining us this morning for our Bible study. If you could do one thing, I want to just invite you to consider Jesus this morning. If you're listening to my words and you don't know if you have a saving faith, you say, I might have thought I was a Christian or I believed in God, but I don't know if I'm a disciple. Then I just want you to stop and consider and ask God. You know, prayer is just talking to God. And maybe you just need to, wherever you're at, just talk to God. Am I a disciple? Uh, Have I surrendered to you? Can you show me what that means? If you are a believer, as we talked about this morning, faith is a continual, lifelong, living sacrifice process. And so there's an invitation to stop and say, hey, God, I need to get my head right. Am I focused on you? Am I your disciple? Have I continued to surrender or have I not Have I allowed the old man of sin, the old woman of sin to kind of take control again? Have I not surrendered some part of my life to you? And this is an invitation to pray. I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you, that the grace of God would be present in your life, that the power of God would be felt and evident in your world this week, and that the peace of God would reign in your heart, in your home, and yes, in your head. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy the week. We'll see you next week at 10.30 a.m. And check out the podcasts that are released throughout the week.